A nation is defined as a group of people with a common language, a common past, and common dreams, writes Ayman O'Day. By this definition, any parent will tell you that all the world's babies are children of a single nation. They have a common language, a common past, common dreams. They speak the same get angry and cry at the same things, laugh the same way. O'Day is an Arab-Palestinian citizen of Israel, someone in a uniquely complicated position, given the violent conflict there. He wrote these words in a New York Times article published this last week entitled, what it takes to choose life over revenge. The author goes on, the whole of this nation of infants, Jewish, Arab, Palestinian, Israeli, wants just one thing, to grow up to a good life. It's a simple dream. As adults, we all become expatriates of that nation, and we take the dream of a good life with us to put food on the table for our families, to know we are free to go where we want, to speak, pray, and celebrate as we like, to come home safely at the end of the day, to know our loved ones will, too. End quote. My eyes filled with tears reading O'Day's words this past week in the midst of the surge of violence in the Holy Land. I thought about how qualified this particular author is to call all sides to the task and responsibility to value innocent life, to call for the protection of all children. It is so hard to actually enact this principle in our world. Not just difficult for armies and governments, it's difficult for you and me, too. When I was a transitional deacon in our diocese, uh, Bishop Rickle made me go on a trip to the Holy Land, as he loved to do. So I've been there. I've given money to support the Anglican Hospital in Gaza. I feel connected to that place. And so when I got news of the explosion there this past week, the first thing I wanted to know was whose fault it was, so I could be angry appropriately. I wanted to blame and rage, and I am not the only one who felt this way. I think we humans want to pick a side because that feels like doing something. And then we can rage and judge and fight, and that also feels like doing something. But is it? I wonder what we lose when we accept the story that there are only two sides, only two options. Only two ways to think, or feel, or act. Us or them. Right or wrong. Children get to live in safety here or 
there. In our gospel this morning, Jesus is in the temple teaching. This is still the week of Jesus' execution, where we have been for several Sundays in our lectionary. Earlier in this week, in this same set of Matthew's stories of Jesus, Jesus arrives at the temple and kicks out all the moneylenders who are doing business inside. And he's not very polite when he does it. Now, several days later, Jesus has been camped out in the temple every day, teaching, healing people, and debating the various representatives of established leadership that come and try to get him to go away. In our reading today, two of these leading groups, the Pharisees and the Herodians, two groups that probably didn't normally get along with each other, form a coalition to trap Jesus. They are very careful with their question. Is it lawful to pay taxes to the emperor or not? If Jesus answers that yes, it is lawful to pay taxes, then he will appear to be nothing more than a puppet of the empire, supporting their oppression of the Jewish people, even while sitting in the temple. But if he says no, it is not lawful to pay taxes, then surely someone will report this to the Roman authorities, and he risks being arrested for treason. Either way, Jesus as a problem for the authorities is eliminated. It's a very smooth trap. But Jesus knows better than to fall for the trap of only two choices. Show me the coin used for the tax, Jesus says to them, and lo and behold, they produce a denarius coin, a coin of the empire, stamped with the emperor's own image. Now, if money is anything, it is a symbol. What we do with our money points beyond the money itself to who and what we value. There was Jewish money, shekels, that one might have expected religious leaders to have at hand in the temple. But these guys have the emperor's coin in their pockets. So instead of picking a side, Jesus steps out of the binary trap they have set and responds with an assertion of his own. Give therefore to the emperor the things that are the emperor and to God the things that are God's. Because what is God's? These rabbis, these religious leaders of the Jewish people know the right answer to that question. What is God's? Every single thing that moves, breathes, sits, flows, and exists. Next to God, there is no emperor. Or there shouldn't be. And just like that, Jesus breaks the binary trap the Pharisees had set for him. I want to say, by the way, that I don't blame them for being upset with him. The Pharisees are people a lot like me, and maybe you, 
They were walking the fine line between faithfulness to God and the reality that life is a lot more survivable with the empire's coin in your pocket. Like the Pharisees, most of us are pretty invested in the currency of our empires. Money, reputation, social capital. And our investments in these currencies push us into binary relationships with each other and the world around us, encouraging us to choose sides and pitting us against other people. In the eyes of our empires, we are haves and have-nots. Black folk and white folk, straight and queer, women and men, pro-Israel or pro-Palestine, etc., etc., etc. When we buy this as our value system, when we believe that there are only two choices and our job is to place ourselves on the winning side, then friends, we have been trapped. The Pharisees thought they were the ones setting the trap. But Jesus was aware that they were well and truly caught in that trap. A lot of people read this gospel passage as permission to pay taxes or as a commentary on the relationship between church and state. I think a better interpretation is that Jesus here is putting empire and corrupt human power into perspective and showing us that there is always more than two ways. We belong to a God who is bigger than taxes, bigger than money, and bigger than revenge. This is the God who did not only create this world, but loves it, inhabits it, died for it. All of this world is God's. It all belongs to God. Like the nation of babies Ayman Ode writes about, all people belong to the same nation in God's kingdom. So this is the challenge for me, and perhaps also for you this morning, to notice the many traps our culture, our media, and yes, our government set for us in the forms of demands, not only for our money, but for our attention, our compassion, our ability to think critically. It's real, this challenge. We are all pressured to render all of who we are to the empires of individualism, anxiety, greed, violence, and fear. But here we are in God's house. This is God's house, not just this church building, but this community. This city, this world outside our door with the changing leaves and the fall bite in the air, Jerusalem, Gaza City, all of it is God's house. 
You see, Caesar engraved his image on that which was most important to him, the money that the Pharisees valued so much. But God has also engraved God's image on that which God loves. And it is here, in these faces, in those trees, in the dream of safety held in each child's heart. Empires cannot love you. But God so loved this world that God gave up God's own self for it. So render to God what is God's, and your money is part of how you do that. But so is your attention, your compassion, your judgment, your broken heart. You are invited to bring all of yourself to this table this morning and always. You are invited to bring all of yourself because all of who you are, your time, your talent, your energy, your money, it all already belongs to a God whose generosity is bigger than we can understand and whose love never runs out, no matter how much of it we spend.